Hello, greetings, thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. Thanks for joining us today. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, where disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Today, let's explore the beginning of the book of Hosea. The word of Yahweh that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When Yahweh first spoke through Hosea, Yahweh said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits your great whoredom by forsaking Yahweh. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And Yahweh said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little time I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and Yahweh said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, or no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by Yahweh their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And Yahweh said, Call his name Lo-Ami, or not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters, You have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as the day in which she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are the children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bale. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, and her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares Yahweh. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. 
For I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth, and they shall be remembered, remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know Yahweh. And that day I will answer, declares Yahweh. I will answer the heavens, and they will answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And Yahweh said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lethach of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore, or belong to another man, and so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh their God, and David their king, and they shall come up in fear to Yahweh and do his goodness in the latter days. So to understand what's going on here and what Hosea is trying to say and why, it's good for us to understand a little bit about what's going on. As we see in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1, the word of Yahweh comes to Hosea in the days of Uzziah through Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and Jeroboam the second king of Israel. This is the period in the 8th century, 800 to 722 B.C. Hosea is therefore a late contemporary of Amos and early contemporary of Isaiah. And so he's kind of bridging those two. And to understand Israelite history at this time, it's best to see it as the calm before the storm. In 2 Kings 14, 23-29, we learn that Jeroboam is the son of Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu. He reigned 41 years over a politically and economically prosperous Israel. He reigned from about 789 to 752. And during that time, he was able to establish his Israelite control over its land and even uh, influence land and, and have control in, in areas of Aram and other places. And it would prove to be a brief renaissance. Now, Jeroboam's son Zechariah would reign six months. And then he was assassinated by Shalom. And that ended the house of Jehu as had been prophesied in the year 752. 2 Kings 15, 8-12 is when this happened. Shalom was assassinated himself a month after he uh, took over power by Menahem. Menahem would reign 10 years. His son Pekah would reign 2 years before... Sorry, Pekiah was his son. And Pekah would then assassinate Pekiah uh, 2 years after that. Pekah would have in total a reign of 20 years. He was assassinated by Hosea, son of Elah. And it was in the days of Pekah that Assyria overwhelmed Israel and conquered all the territory except for Ephraim. And this is somewhere between 749 and 730. Uh, the Syro-Ephraimitic War of 734-732. Uh, something talked about 2 Kings 15, also in Isaiah 7. Hosea would reign the final nine years of Israelite history. In his day, the city of Samaria was besieged and taken by the Assyrians, and the Israelite kingdom would be no more in 2 Kings 17. Now we can tell that uh, Hosea lived to see all of this. Uh, the end of Israel came in the very beginning of Hezekiah's reign. Uh, the fact that only Jeroboam II is mentioned may indicate that Hosea's prophecies came during that period specifically. Maybe that he was exiled to Judah, though that's less likely. 
Now, I gave a lot of years there, a lot of time, and it, it doesn't necessarily match up on, on the chronology we have from the Assyrians and others. And basically the idea is there's probably some co-regencies or perhaps like say Pika's reigning in part of Israel for some of the time and then all of Israel for the rest of it. And so from all the accounts and to make sense and harmonize everything, it seems that Israel would only exist about 30 years after Jeroboam II's death. So this is why we need to kind of really see where Hosea is talking to people. They're living in time that they think is great, and it is great for them. You know, Jeroboam has great policies that have made it so that Israel is prospering. Uh, they are, for the moment, stronger than many of their adversaries. They've carved out a place for themselves. Um, we know what's coming. They don't. As far as they're aware, that prosperity could continue. Or the general process of weekdays and strong days would continue uh, as far as they were aware. And so Hosea is speaking to them warning them about what's going to happen because Hosea knows, like we know. And he's trying to get them to repent or they are going to be destroyed. We have to remember in Israel, there are these temples in Dan and Bethel, and they have golden calves inside. They call those golden calves Yahweh, as seen in, in uh, 1 Kings 12 and also in 2 Kings 15. Uh, the service to Baal and other Canaanite gods remain very rampant. And that's one of the parts of the indictment in 2 Kings 17. Uh, so even though Israel seems like everything is going well... Um, the story's not going to end well. And so Hosea and we know that the end is coming in this generation. But the people don't recognize that. Things seem to be going well, and for them, they might as well think things are going to continue to go well. So we'll, we see Hosea's challenge, uh, trying to wake up a complacent people about their imminent spiritual danger. And so uh, that's what this text is about. And, and this whole section as we're reading, is part of this very astonishing sign act, really. And that's what we see in chapter 1, a sign act. Yahweh tells Hosea to take a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom as a sign act, because that's what the land is. People are doing in the land. So here's a question that's one of those unanswerable ones. This, so does Hosea go and find some uh, prostitute and marry her? Or is Hosea taking a wife and expect that his wife is going to turn to prostitution? It's one of those questions we're not going to be able to answer. But uh, Gomer's daughter of Dibliam is the woman that Hosea takes his wife. She conceives and bore a son to Hosea. And his name is Jezreel. That Yahweh tells him to name him Jezreel because of the blood of Jezreel that comes upon the house of Jehu, the ultimate end of the kingdom of Israel. And so we have names of Sinax, which is not the only time we're going to see this. Emmanuel, and gives God with us. Maher Shalal Hashbaz, in Isaiah 8, hasten to the spoil, hasten to the prey. Uh, and in fact, in Isaiah 8, 18, Isaiah says that his name and the names of his children are signs to the children of Israel. And so it is here with Hosea. Jezreel is a fertile valley in Israel. It's where Jehu in 2 Kings 9 slaughtered Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah. What's interesting about that is in the first 13 verses of that chapter, Jehu was anointed king by Elisha the prophet and basically told to do as much. Um, even if Elisha did not tell him to do that, which he did, you know, God's judgment was coming upon the house of Ahab for all the sins of Ahab. 
uh, the fact of the matter was that uh, it's still regicide. You're still killing your monarch. And uh, that's the big question. Why would Yahweh avenge blood that he wanted to be shed to first place? Well, there's still consequences. And maybe the fact that even in Second Kings chapter 10, when it's all said and done, there was a prediction and the establishment that Jehu would have four generations. And this fifth generation would be destroyed. And that might indicate this judgment. Hey, in the end, Jehu has a longer-lasting dynasty than the Omrides. Jeroboam II takes it to great heights, but it would end as it began, with the death of a king by hands of another, an assassination. And that's true for every Israelite dynasty. And as we just kind of saw quickly with the history, the end of Jehu's dynasty would presage the end of Israel. And that's exactly what uh, is prophesied here with Jezreel. And the future events would make that very clear. Now, Gomer is going to bear two more children, and neither of which are generally considered Hosea's biological children. Um, there's a little difference there that uh, Gomer had a child to him, uh, bore him a son, and then the other time she just bore a child, which would go along with the children of Hordom. Idea, lo ruhama, no mercy, lo ami, not my people, because Yahweh is not going to have mercy in Israel, and they're not going to be his people anymore. And um, so Hosea is having children that are not his own biologically. They're children of whoredom, although he does have one child to be able to continue his heritage. Yahweh was nice enough to provide that. It's really a shocking development. Because Israel uh, was rescued and stood as a people of Yahweh. And so the, their whole standing... They, they, it's very sometimes difficult for us to remember that all of these condemnations of idolatry, uh, it's not as if Yahweh... I mean, Israel truly forgot Yahweh was their God. They always believed Yahweh was the God of Israel who'd rescued them from the land of Egypt. It's just that they also served these other gods. And they never understood that they were supposed to be more exclusive in their service to, to, to God than they had they proved. And so you, the idea they would not be God's people, that God would not have mercy on them, would be devastating to them. Because um, if they're not Yahweh's people, everybody understands what that means. Yahweh's going to give them over to the nations and the desires that they have. And... Uh, destruction exile is going to follow because neither Israel nor Judah can stand by their own strength. Not with uh, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon around. And yet hope is extended because the day of Jezreel will be great and Israel will be at the sand of the sea and Israel and Judah will be gathered together again and God will again declare them to be his people and that they would have received mercy at the end of Hosea uh, into chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2 evoking 1 Peter 2, 9-10. through 10. So then, in verse 2 of chapter 2 and continuing, it would seem that Hosea is asking somebody, maybe Jezreel, maybe somebody else, to deliver a plea to Gomer that she would cease whoredom and adultery. Um, and, and yet, the, the consequences seem pretty dire if she doesn't stop. They're gonna be, she's going to be stripped naked, made into a desert, killed by thirst. Upon these children, no mercy will be given. They're children of whoredom. Uh, and she's going after her lovers and get the necessities and pleasures of life from them. But she's going to find herself hedged in. She's going to realize her folly and return to her husband, realizing she was better off when she was faithful, faithful than at the present time. When we look at this explanation, we see that it really isn't Hosea trying to plead with Gomer. In verse 8, it's very clear that this is Yahweh speaking to Israel. And so Yahweh is talking to Israel. Israel has had all these material blessings that they believe have come from all these idols. But in fact, Yahweh wants to be clear that Yahweh is the one who gives them all these things. 
So everything's supposed to be understood in terms of Yahweh and Israel that we have already seen. Her adultery is her idolatry. Her nakedness is her earlier state, cast out in the wilderness in death or exile. And later generations are not going to receive mercy, but will suffer. And so we can imagine that Hosea might have something similar to say to Gomer, but this is really uh, Yahweh speaking to Israel. And Hosea can make this speech because he embodies the situation. He, he, he has a, a profound understanding of what's going on here. Yahweh threatens that he's going to take back all the benefits and blessings he's given to Israel, and they're going to be exposed as naked before their idols and enemies, and they're not going to be rescued from his hand. He's going to put an end to all their festivals and their joy. He's going to lay waste their vineyards and fields that they thought Baal gave to them. They're going to return to the forest. Beasts will devour them, and Yahweh's going to punish them for their feast of Baal and their service to idols. And this is, sounds very dire. Then all of a sudden, in verse 14, though, we get a major shift. Because Yahweh provides reassurance. He's going to go out and allure Israel and speak tenderly in the, to in the wilderness, uh, give hope in the Valley of Achor, as, will, as when he, Israel left Egypt. The Valley of Achor is, is from Joshua 7, 10-26, where uh, Israel stoned Achan for the sin of taking stuff from Jericho. So Yahweh is yearning for the day when Israel took his commandments seriously and looked to him for sustenance and actually did what he said. Now those days Israel called Yahweh her husband and no longer her Baal. And Baal's not going to be in their mouths anymore. Yahweh's going to renew the covenant, grant peace and stability. Israel will be betrothed to Yahweh in righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. And Israel will know Yahweh. Now understand some of the nuance here. Baal is the god of storms and the Canaanite religion but in hebrew baal is a word that means master husband and so we see baal being used to describe a master or a husband in say exodus 21 22 in verse 20 29 and jeremiah 31 32 so it can refer to a husband as well and so in jeremiah 31 32 baal is used to describe a husband's figure uh yahweh yearns for the day when the word's not even going to be in israel's mouth because of that association with baal the canaanite storm god and this is taken extremely seriously by Jews later on. So we have two uh, sons of Saul, the first king of Israel, Ishbael and Meribael. And you can see that they're Ishbael and Meribael because their names are written as Ishbael and Meribael in First Chronicles chapter nine. But if you're used to them from the Samuel account, Second Samuel four, they're called Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. Uh, Baal, of course, is the word we've been talking about. Boshit is a shameful thing. And so you can see what's going on there. There's a shameful thing that, that Israel should be ashamed of. So even though this was given as names previously, they're changing names so that the name of Baal need not be on the lips of Israelites. We also should know, and we'll talk more about this, this marital imagery, betrothal, covenant, marriage between Yahweh and Israel. It's very significant throughout this whole passage. And so that Yahweh is going to answer the heavens, which will answer the earth, which will answer with grain, wine, and oil. That, that kind of invocation summons is a demonstration of, of blessing. It could also be judgment here, it's blessing. And uh, we'll answer Jezreel, which is going to be sown on the land. No mercy is going to receive mercy. Yahweh will tell not my people, he is his people, and he will answer Yahweh as his God. So in this way, the sign acts of Hosea's children are limited in duration. And the time will come when uh, Lo Ruhamah will receive mercy. 
Loami will be my people. So these things are only for a short of time. This is a picture of full restoration, and why Peter will pick up on this in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, that even Gentiles who were not the people of God will now become his people. And so the, the story will come full circle. There is hope that Jezreel will prosper, Lower Hamor will receive mercy, and Loami will again be the people of God. And so chapter 3 is very short, but it's kind of a kind of the code of the whole thing. The Yahweh speaks again to Hosea, tells him to go and love a woman beloved by another and who is an adulteress. And that's a sign for Israel, because Yahweh loves Israel despite her inclinations to idolatry. And some scholars suggest Hosea does not take Gomer back. He goes and finds another woman. But it really reduce, makes the sign act ludicrous and misses its significance. It's contextually unwarranted. If, if Hosea doesn't go back to get Gomer then the whole idea of Yahweh taking Israel back is kind of ridiculous. Now, and Israel loves raisin cakes. They're delicacies in 2 Samuel 6.19. It might be the idea that they've offered these idols, which indicates Israel's wealth and decadence, uh, or it's a suggestive of the appeal of idolatry to do these things. And so, Israel, Hosea, notice, goes and purchases the favor of his wife company for 15 silver shekels and a homer and a half of barley. She's supposed to dwell with him for a time and not commit whoredom or adultery. And this ex the sign act is explained. Israel's going to dwell without a king, without a place to sacrifice, without an ephod, which is a priestly garment, or household gods. And Israel at that point will realize they need to seek Yahweh for help and to have David as their king, and house of David. And they will come to fear Yahweh and his goodness in the latter days. And he speaks of the end of Israel as it knows itself, fulfilled in the exile to come. And uh, the fulfillment of this promise of David is seen in the Christ, who will himself go to Samaria, John 4, and whose disciples will proclaim the gospel in Samaria in Acts 8, and in fact calls all people to himself, that all may be his people and all may receive mercy. And so this way we learn about Hosea and Gomer, Yahweh and Israel. When we consider what we should take away from it, the whole theme going on here is is the this is mind-boggling. We're just kind of left dumbstruck that what Yahweh expects out of Hosea. Can you imagine your prophet? Go marry a whore. And, and you know which one is worse? Who can imagine? Go actually find a woman who lives as a whore, marry her, and consider her your wife, or marry a woman who will turn to whoredom. Yeah. Regardless, he's in a position of shame in the culture. He has children of whoredom, and so there would be you know, rumors about people would, would know these things. And there's a lot of suffering and pain and heartache, let alone shame, that Hosea must endure. And Yahweh's putting Hosea through these things for a reason. Adultery doesn't mean, need, necessarily mean whoredom. Again, I'm trying to reduce what would be worse, somebody who goes and commits adultery just for the fun of it, or somebody who goes to get paid to commit adultery. Hosea endures both. He knows the pain of the unfaithful wife. He knows the compounded pain of somebody willing to give herself for money, and perhaps even in the name of a foreign goddess. Um... Again, we hope that Jezreel is his so that at least somebody is able to inherit the family and property name uh, lest Hosea is fully cursed. But um, it's very clear that two of his children seem to be born uh, as a result of whoredom. These are actually uh, fathered by another man and he raises them as his own. 
And can we even imagine trying having to go buy back our spouse to have some time with them? As, as Hosea does in chapter 3. Uh, and this is an awful home life. Gotta be. And it's all by Yahweh's decree. But Hosea needs to experience this in order to embody this main metaphorical vehicle that Yahweh uses to set forth the relationship he has with Israel and the relationship he should have with Israel. As Gomer is with Hosea, that's what Israel is doing to Yahweh. So Yahweh is to be the real Baal for Israel, her husband. But Israel has gone and served other gods, including Baal. Israel believes that these other gods have been providing all this stuff that Yahweh has actually given them. So how do you communicate the covenant violations that Israel has transgressed? Well, adultery and whoredom is the go-to because that's the two main ideas of covenant between God and man and between husband and wife. So the Israelites would have seen Hosea go through all this misery, and they were to understand by the sign act and the sign acts of Jezreel, Loruhama, and Loami that judgment was coming for their king and for them. Uh, and again, this is when we need to again emphasize the idea of what it means to believe versus to obey. It's very easy to say that because Israel uh, didn't obey Yahweh, they didn't believe in him. And we need to dismiss that because all Israel believed Yahweh was their God, that he was a God of Israel. No one argued that. In fact, the Egyptians believed Yahweh was God of Israel. The Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they all believed Yahweh was a God of Israel. That was never the issue. The issue was never whether Israel was going to believe in Yahweh. The issues were whether Israel would honor the first commandment and have no other gods before him and the second commandment to make a graven image and call it Yahweh. And of course, on both of these counts, Israel, the northern kingdom, failed utterly. 2 Kings 17, 7-23. Now, why they failed is instructive to us. When they thought about Yahweh, what came to mind? No doubt, golden calves. That's what they bowed down to in Second, First Kings 12, 27-30, in Dan and Bethel. Now, in the ancient Near East, that's an eminently sensible choice. Everybody looks at their God as some object or another. But doing that meant they would break the Second Commandment. But beyond that, it limited their understanding of God to a statue in a building. So they didn't only, not only live in the ancient Near Eastern world, they imbibed an ancient Near Eastern way of looking at everything. And so their God is now a statue in a couple of places. Yahweh is a God of Israel, yeah, but the other nations have their gods, and it becomes easy to decide to make sure those gods got their appropriate honor and devotion. And this gets us to how sensible syncretism is. Because we take monotheism for, for granted. We don't recognize the amount of faith monotheism would have required an Israelite in the ancient Near Eastern world. Because the idea of syncretism is very powerful. And syncretism just means that you would just serve all the gods. You know, all the gods. To, you know, go ahead and, 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 and give devotion to all of them. Because, uh, why would you want to anger some god and incur judgment? And that's what the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans are very good at. If a new god were discovered, it was better to give him or her the appropriate service and veneration, lest he or she break out against you. Cyrus and the Cyrus Cylinder claims that the whole reason the Babylonian Empire gets overthrown is because they didn't honor Marduk, their god. Euripides Bacchae, Euripides tries to show what happens to a bunch of people who denied Dionysus his due. In Acts 17.23, that's that, uh, to the unknown god altar in Athens, in case they miss somebody. 
And so the Canaanites believe that Baal and Astarte are the reason for crop fertility and therefore the produce in the land. Israel is supposed to believe Yahweh provides all these things. So, very, we don't have any reason to believe that there was a Canaanite-specific drought. So the Canaanites would have had drought and the Israelites didn't. So it would be very hard to argue in terms of any kind of empirical terms about this claim, whether it's Baal or whether it's Yahweh. And so, in a world where famine is an ever-present danger, something is hard for us to recognize. We can understand why it was seen as foolish to not honor Baal. Because to brazenly declare that Yahweh and Yahweh alone is the source of all good for Israel would not be heard well. We see how this worked for the prophets. Because after all, you could try to stubbornly insist Yahweh is going to bring us the food. Yahweh is going to give us the food. Yahweh gives us food until the first drought. Then where is Yahweh's sustenance? Where is the abundance that Yahweh is supposed to provide? And such a person would be hard-pressed when everybody's starving to hold on to that view. Now, in reality, we step back, Israel was blessed either by Baal or by Yahweh. This is not something you can fence it on. By capitulating to fear or syncretic desires and say, I don't want to offend anybody, you're going to actually cause offense. It leads to condemnation because you're doing what Israel ended up doing. By making sure that you try to give service to Yahweh and to Baal, you're angering Yahweh because what Yahweh is giving you, you're saying, actually comes to Baal. And this is also what happens with the early Christians. The insistence that there is but one God and that Jesus is Lord is a challenge to the entire way of looking at things in both the ancient Near Eastern and in the classical world. When did Israel anyway get serious about monotheism? Well, when the way of looking at things was entirely overwhelmed by the exile. Uh, Baal didn't save them from all of the, uh, the Syrians and Babylonians. What happened to the Christians who insisted there was but one God and Jesus is Lord? They were tolerated as oddities in the ancient world. But when anything went wrong, there's a plague, there's a famine, or an invasion, they got blamed for it because they were not giving the ancestral gods their due respect. And so they were called out, uh, everything's going wrong because these Christians aren't honoring the gods. And that's the perniciousness of idolatry, then and now. To serve the God of Israel demands that we do not conform to the conventional wisdom of the day. And to realize it's always great temptation to syncretize. It's a sensible conclusion. So we're not to conform to this world, be transformed by the renewing of our mind in Romans 12. In 1 Peter 4, we're supposed to expect persecution from the Gentiles. Because think about how many might have been amenable to have believed in Yahweh only, but were afraid of the consequences of Baal were real and angered by that disrespect? How many of the Israelites in the days of Jesus were amenable to the gospel, were afraid of the implications of their relationship with the synagogue and the danger of following a false messiah? How many pagans may have been amenable to the gospel, but stumbled on the idea that Jesus, you know, that God is only one, and only you know, Jesus is Lord? We're not bowing down to statues today, most of us, but there's still a strong temptation to syncretism. Oh, we'll trust God on all sorts of issues, but aren't we a bit afraid of the power of capitalism, consumerism, materialism, science, secularism, the nation-state, sexuality, popularity, middle-class respectability, civil norms, and so on? How well do we handle the pressure to conform to be just another American, or from other, any other else from any other country, to be like the other members of their country? The ancient Israelites proved to be just another group of the ancient Near East, and because of that, they suffered the same fate as the rest of the groups of the ancient Near East, and were overwhelmed by stronger powers. 
We cannot be fully reactionary, though. We gotta be careful about that. Israel found the means to appropriate a lot of elements of the ancient Near Eastern world to glorify God. Psalm 84 sounds a lot like some things written for ancient gods. It's Proverbs the, and Song of Solomon both are, are uh, the type of literature you see throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. But do we prove willing to really believe in God and Christ by affirming the gospel message at its most absolute and exclusive? To renounce our fears and our apprehensions about all the ways the spiritual forces behind this present darkness manifest themselves. And to realize that if we're on the fence at all and say, I, I know God is there and he's in charge, but I don't want to incur this wrath or I'm afraid of this or that. Or what if there's some power over here? Uh, we found ourselves in the same position as Israel. And God's going to want to know why we attributed all the things he gave us to these other forces. And we don't want to be in that position. And so we are extremely stunned, again, by what Hosea has to endure. But we should not allow that reaction to cloud this forceful message in Hosea 1-3. through Yahweh loves Israel. Now, the predominant metaphor of Yahweh and Israel is that of husband and wife, which is, of course, powerfully relational. It's not typical of an association, and it's how, how powerful the idea of a covenantal relationship really is. And so this is all the more astonishing to see the scandal of Hosea 2.14-3.5. through Yahweh is a husband, but look at the links he goes to to bring Israel back to himself. He's going to go allure her again. He's going to renew the covenant. Hosea goes back to buy his warring wife. Yahweh's going to buy back Israel out of Israel, exile and to restore her to himself. Remember, Yahweh's entirely in the right to have nothing to do with Israel. She had committed constant idolatry and never fully trusted him, but Yahweh refuses to give up on Israel. Despite all of its failings and past idolatry, God will betroth Israel to himself again. And so in this way, we get a very important insight into the God of Israel. It's so easy for people to try to play off the God of the Old Testament, off the God of the New Testament, wrath off of love. And a lot of people justify that by looking at the prophets. And we saw some pretty strong judgment language here. How can that be reconciled to God of love? Well, if without considering a relational view and just looking at it uh quote-unquote objectively, we could certainly understand how somebody would come to that conclusion, because God does seem pretty angry and judgmental. But the prophets aren't doing it, quote-unquote, objectively. They're doing it in terms of the relationship that should exist between God and Israel. And so when we look at it in terms of that relationship, we don't see God as an embittered, angry old man, but we see him as an aggrieved husband, wanting nothing more than his wife's love and faithfulness. Yes, judgment is going to be necessary. Yes, Yahweh is going to hand his people over to plague and pestilence and famine and sword and exile. But he loves Israel and even in these oracles of condemnation gives hope for future restoration. And this is why the prophets, as awful as things seem, are never fully dark. There is hope after the judgment. There is a restoration after the fire, a renewal of what is broken. That is the way it is with Yahweh. It's the way it is with Hosea. And that's the way it is also in the New Covenant. Because the God of Israel is the same God throughout. He's a God of relational unity. A God seeking relationship with his people. A God who doesn't stop loving his people. A God who will discipline his people. Even cast them off in a time for judgment in order to satisfy justice and encourage repentance. But a God who from beginning to end loves his people and wants them to be saved. And that's in this way that we remain the people of God. We're tempted to believe in God, but hedge our bets and give God's glory to that which is not truly God. 
But Yahweh remains the God of Israel, and he loves his people. He will do all he can to maintain a relationship with him, but not at the expense of justice and righteousness. And that is why we should not spurn our Heavenly Father, to know that our Father will love us no matter how we stray, but with our straying will come consequences now and or in the hereafter. And that we need to know above all things that he wishes to allure us all to be restored in covenant through his son Jesus. And we all have that opportunity to this day as long as we have life. If you'd like to learn more about these things and, and what it means to come back and to be part of the covenant people of God, if you'd like to talk more about these things, consider future, uh, other discussions about Hosea or other parts of the Bible. If you'd like to have a Bible study or participate in a Bible correspondence course, you can also learn more about us and check us out online at VenticeChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media. If you'd like to contact me personally, uh, you can contact me through my website, DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.